Welcome to another episode of Strictly Business, the podcast in which we talk with some of the brightest minds working in media today. I'm Andrew Wallenstein with Variety. Last month, I shared the stage with John Favreau at Variety's annual Entertainment and Technology Summit in Los Angeles. And while there's plenty to say about his career as an actor, producer, and writer, in this conversation, we focused on his work as a director, specifically his innovations in visual effects, from The Lion King to his upcoming Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian, the latest from the Star Wars franchise. Here's an edited recording of our conversation. We're going to talk today at the Entertainment and Tech Summit uh, about, as I said, really pioneering work you've done in recent years with regard to visual effects. Um, you know, you think back to, uh, we saw, I think, when you directed The Jungle Book, I think that was 2016, uh, what you did with motion capture. You were just kind of starting to really play with uh, the tools of the trade, but you took it to a whole new level this year. Uh, with Lion King, and we'll talk a bit about that in animation. And of course, uh, you've got upcoming on Disney Plus the new Star Wars series, The yes, Mandalorian. That's right. So let's start there because you were at D23, the big Disney fan convention, just a few weeks ago introducing that. What was it like to get out in front of really the super fans with something you've been sort of hiding close to the vest for a while? It's I've had an interesting relationship with the fans, uh, part of how. The industry has has changed. Uh, whether it was Comic Con or D twenty three or now Star Wars Celebration, it's a really uh, interesting, wonderful opportunity for, on the one hand, to present your message in almost like a political grassroots kind of way, like going to your fan base and saying, "Here's what we're up to." And because of social media, that that resonates outward. And I think a lot of the success of Iron Man could be attributed to that core group that echoed out from Comic-Con, but it's also a, a wonderful opportunity to actually get a relationship with, in the case of those those uh, events, I think at D23, there was like 7,500 people in the audience. So you get this wave of energy back at you and at your cast, and then the people who are working on the project, uh, generally you show that about a year early, the first look. And so it really puts wind in your sails and it gets the whole team to get excited that we're working on something, as you said, in a vacuum. But but you get this really uh, sincere, authentic feedback directly from the people. And that energy is something that really carries you forward. Is there a pressure, though, that comes with not just serving a fan base that has very high expectations, but you're you know, this is Star Wars and this is also the, really going to be the big show for a new streaming service in Disney+. Plus. Are there like additional pressures that come with all that? I mean, there's always... I don't look down, so uh, it doesn't, that doesn't... Like, I, I don't know how far up the tightrope is. I know that if you engage with the people around you, and if you can delight... If you're a fan and you can delight yourself, and then you have a core group of people who are really invested in... The outcome, whether it's people on your team and your family or or the first layer of audience that is highly engaged. I think the lesson from Marvel was start with that group and, and work your way out as opposed to trying to average things down and make it appealing to the least common denominator, denominator of your audience. I think in this very vocal, this time of very vocal audiences, 
you see that they're very reactive to material. Used to be, you know, if you marketed a movie well, you could get a big weekend out of it, even if the movie wasn't great. Nowadays, you could see those numbers dip because everybody's talking to one another on social media. So the audience is becoming a big part of the conversation. And so I think it's incumbent upon us, and I think it's always good to do so anyway, to just make sure that you respect the audience and engage with them. And then they'll, if you've done a good job, they'll, they'll help signal boost you and, 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 and take you to the next level. It's not unlike politics in many ways, hmm. oddly, the way that you have to engage because it's, it's many tiered. But the first tier has to be the people who are already there. Well, looking ahead at The Mandalorian, you know, I think people now come to expect a John Favreau project is going to have it's going to have the visual wow of the Jungle Book, the Lion King. Mm-hmm. What in the Mandalorians do you think people will be impressed with? And, and explain sort of the technology that you're using to deliver that visual pop. Well, I think that that, that you know you always have to talk about technology with its marriage to storytelling. At least that's the nexus point that that I think is is the crux of the whole thing, because whether it's a, a story you're telling on the screen or a story you're telling through selling this new technology and presenting it to people as Steve Jobs would, our, our entryway into new technologies and innovations is always the story that we're telling through that innovation. And in the case of what I do, it's very a very clean version of it because you're actually telling a story to people. It's not just a story in marketing or not just a story in publicity, but it's a story that they're going to see depicted. And the technology is something that has to serve that story and interact with it and inspire it. So in the case of Star Wars, and each of these is a different puzzle. You know, with, with Lion King, we had a different set of parameters and used a different set of technologies than we do for Star Wars. For Star Wars, the parameters were how do you make it feel like Star Wars? How, do you, how can I tell a story set in this particular time, which is, for those of you who know Star Wars, after Return of the Jedi, after The Empire Falls... What's this gritty world? I was in, always interested in what inspired George Lucas originally, which were samurai films and westerns. And how do I find a time period and a way to depict that in a, in a manner and a scale that is evocative of the material and the stories that inspired George originally? And so part of what we're doing, to you know, uh, we have to work within the parameters of what the streaming service is. And so in many ways, it follows the structure of a television show in that you don't have endless post-production. You don't have endless budget. And it really was served uh, by the scale of the original, which isn't the big, huge blockbuster movies that, that we see on the big screen all the time. The original Star Wars were a bit more intimate and character-driven. And so we uh, are using technology that's uh, makes best use of that scale and part of what we're exploring is uh, is using game engine real-time rendering uh, because with all the compositing that we're doing we could either do it in camera using video walls we're we're the first production to actually take advantage of innovations that have been taking place in this case we're working with ilm and with uh, epic unreal engine with magnopus a lot of people that i've worked with before on other projects and we try to create uh, a new way to use this real-time rendering where you can actually do in-camera effects on video walls with uh, camera tracking and parallax uh, that wouldn't have worked for for lion king why because, because that's jungles and animals and fur here it's hard surfaces spaceships planets you know uh sand uh, so it has to do with what the capabilities of the technology are but underlying it, you know, we used a game engine to make 
Lion King. We use Unity and we work with MPC. And so what I'm finding is that by taking uh, advantage of all these innovations and working and collaborating with all these different companies, uh, it's great for the project because you get all of this new learning and all of this enthusiasm to try to be innovative. And, and it ends up serving the audience well because it's this beautiful um, end product that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten. And then the companies I collaborate with are happy because whatever we innovate there, they then branch off and innovate further. And so just coming from those two projects, MPC has a virtual camera suite that they do. Uh, we worked with uh, uh, Epic now has it built into their new system. Uh, a, a, a filmmaking system that takes advantage of parallax and camera position that they're going to be launching. ILM has stagecraft that they've refined, which is something that started with George all the way back in, the, in, the, in I believe, the prequels. That is also an in-camera way to do real-time render. And Magnopus uh, is a company that's branched off and, and is innovative in that space as well. So uh, all of these companies that, that we work with then can uh, bring this culture, which is basically storyteller and creative-friendly use of technology in a way that takes advantage of the traditions of cinema and not disrupting them completely. And then hopefully that echoes out and creates further innovation as other filmmakers collaborate and work with that technology. And that collaboration, I think, was key to this new organization or initiative that you've developed called Golem Creation. Yeah, yeah. Talk a bit about what you were tempted to do with this uh, new entity. Well, I found, I, I thought I was being drawn to all sorts of disparate projects. Because if you look at my list of things I'm working on, I have a stop-motion Christmas special that I'm working on. I'm in, with the guys who I did stop-motion for Elf, the Kyoto Brothers. I have a VR project with a company called Weaver called Gnomes and Goblins that we've been working on for, for, for I think, five years, getting ready to launch uh, a, a bigger product of that. Mandalorian, which is using in-camera uh, effects and real-time render. Lion King, which is basically creating a multiplayer VR filmmaking game that we created the whole movie in. And then short-form pieces. So there's, there's this whole weird array, and I realize that all of them have something in common, that they're all about the nexus point of innovative technologies and developing new technologies to serve storytelling and the filmmaking community. And whether it's innovating based on new production techniques that we're developing or innovating based on technology associated with new platforms of distribution, there is a way for filmmaking and technology to continue the dance that they've been in for 100 years that have created uh, breakthroughs for both. And at this point in my career, I created Golem, uh, Golem Creations because it seemed to be more of a, a catch-all for the technological side of filmmaking as opposed to having a production company where we're pouring over scripts and trying to find new things to develop and trying to scale. The company's very small, and it's all about collaborating with other companies and other filmmakers and, and creating content myself that is exciting because it's not just telling a story – but it's also innovating and shaping the course of the way the industry moves. I mean, it's interesting when you're saying that you're working on projects that the implications of which really have these reverberations for the rest of the industry. Yes. Um, because, certainly, because disruption right. is often and can be negative. But 
But there's an opportunity with each innovation. And I think that it's always been seen as a zero-sum game. And for a long time, you used to work with your crew on a movie that were like the production designers and the cinematographers. And then you'd have the visual effects supervisor. And they would kind of be fighting the zero-sum game and at odds with one another. And slowly I found people from both sides of the aisle that were excited by the opportunities that the other presented. And then you, when you start to realize that, that collaborating not only helps the innovations be more effective, but it also allows for us to preserve the skill set and push it forward of, you know, I work with Caleb Deschanel. Caleb Deschanel, amazing cinematographer, never did an effects-driven movie in his life. We hired him to do Lion King. We built a tool set by which he could operate cameras, set lights, have dolly track, have a whole live-action crew around him, and basically take what would have been a completely animated movie and bring in a human element to help set cameras in the layout phase. So if you visited the set of The Lion King, there would have been, if you came in the beginning, I was working with animators, it would have looked like a Pixar movie. We did layout, we did character animation, everything was in their animatic storyboards. But if you came during our production period, you would have seen an AD team, dolly grips, a crane, um, Caleb Deschanel on the wheels. You would have seen a, a script supervisor, a full crew, running with the cadence of, of a real production. Now, if that was left to its own devices, it would have been the people who were coding all of this new uh, technology would have been setting the lights, moving the cameras, doing what you do in previs. But you benefit from having the skill set of these people who have spent their entire lives developing this art and this craft. And so what happens is the people from the film world start learning about the technology, start requesting things like, hey, I would, you know, I wish I could have an analog focus pulling knob so that my camera assistant could, could control when we rack focus. And so he brings in a piece of equipment, they take the weekend, encode that, and next thing you know, there's a tool that pulls focus with a focus puller as opposed to somebody just changing parameters with a keyboard. At the same time, he's teaching them how to light because you light a video game different than you light a movie. Right. And so now you have this wealth of experience that's being passed down from Caleb to the people who are setting lights at the, at the boxes on the perimeter of the stage. And also, as a director, I can now interact with this whole creative chain of command that I'm used to for my whole career, and we could scout together in VR so that I don't have to stand over somebody's shoulder and tell them where I want the dolly track and what I want the shot to be, we could walk around and look around and say, hey, this is a good background, this is a good angle. And you have this iterative creative process that preserves the way I came up as a director. And now that that film's been successful, we've created a paradigm where if other people say, how did Lion King do it? They're going to be inheriting that whole infrastructure as opposed to using that same technology. It could have looked like a video game design studio which is totally different. Disruption doesn't have to be so disruptive when you plan accordingly. Well said. What I also thought could be disruptive, though, was the very technology that you employed in The Lion King where you've got photorealistic animation. I'm sitting there watching this incredible picture thinking, is this the beginning of a slippery slope where even a movie populated entirely by humans could be... Uh, created in an animated sense using these technologies. Look, I think the implications go much further than that. Like a movie, whether it's a an animated human or not animated human, uh, is uh, I'm worried about a you know deep fake. I'm worried about I'm worried about a, a, a news flash, not a movie as much. 
But I think that part of what's interesting about this is is it shows us where the technology is and it, it requires human vigilance. And, you know, there's always that's the, that's also the story of the golem, which is, you know, the golem can could rampage the countryside or it could protect the village. We have to make sure that we engage with technology in a way that serves humanity. And the best way to do it is to is to be mindful, collaborative and aware. Um, what I like to do as far as just answering your your question about the implications in the film industry is to infuse, you know, these are just tools. Lion King is the most handmade movie I've ever worked on. Every frame was poured over by artists. The the actors, we, we uh, filmed the actors for reference to get their performances, to get improv, overlapping. At the end of the day, the animators interpolate that performance into animals, but there will be, at some point, the ability to just completely track people in and have a digital version of it. Uh, I would contend that part of what we... the, the the biggest thing we connect with as humans is other human behavior. And so a computer is not generating it from scratch. They're simply making it look better and more convincing. But at its core, if you didn't have Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen improving and coming back and banging around, I don't think that that would have been an entertaining... Timon and Pumbaa would not have been entertaining characters. By the same token, every environment that's been designed to hold a mirror up to nature, that wasn't just created by a computer. That was created by hundreds of artists. And so... You have this collaboration where people are having to create every single aspect of it. You don't inherit anything by going out into, into nature and setting a camera. You have to create everything that you photograph. So I think that it is good to be cautious and understand what the implications of technology represent. But I think that there is a way to have it uh, boost the opportunities of creativity because your imagination is no longer fettered in the same way by uh, the shortcomings of, of what you can achieve in, in, in film. So I, I think that it's, it, it, there, there are two sides to that coin. And, th- and that's, that's honestly why I want to focus on this so much now, because I feel I'm in a, in, a, in a unique position to help inform that conversation. I think it's an important conversation. And do you, but, you know, to take it where, uh, to deep fake territory, are you even thinking about that level in terms of what society can protect uh, with that kind of footage? Well, it's the same people innovating for all these things. And so technology, when you understand what AI is doing and how things are, bec- how, how there's machine learning. And I'm glad that they have deep fake videos on, on, on YouTube. I want people to understand it in a way where it's not so charged so that they could say, oh, wow, that's what, that's what technology is capable of. And we all know Moore's law. It's just going to get more. And so we have to ask some questions of ourselves as a society and as a culture of how do we... I don't think the ostrich method of sticking your head in the ground is going to save uh, you know, anybody from, from the challenges of the future. I think that we have to have... Um, we have to engage with it in a way that is thoughtful and in a way that um, takes into consideration where we think things are going. And but doesn't that imply that you could... Possibly, like it seems to me that technology does what technology does. Yes. So, are there really any safeguards an industry or uh, an internet company could put on this to control the situation? I think you have to explore. I'm not an expert in this area, so I could only speculate as you would. Uh, but what I would say is that uh, 
focusing your attention on things that are potentially problematic is a good is a good step. And I think that when people are unaware or ignore the the trends that are happening is when you get caught off balance. And what gives me what's encouraging to me is that the people who are behind all of this, it's just it's people. And 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 there are a lot of people who share common values. And I and I don't think it's for a lack of concern or a lack of being motivated to make the world a better place moving forward. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's sort of this balancing act that we have to find where, we're, where you're not ringing an alarm bell and freaking everybody out just to get their attention. You, know, you don't want the car alarm going off all the time. Otherwise, you, you, you can't hear the car alarm anymore. But by the same token, you don't want to be um, optimistic uh, without having... Uh, just trusting that things are going to work out in a positive way. I think the, the, you know, the challenge of our time is to find a way to, to, to benefit from all the wonderful aspects that technology has to offer. And I think that if you look at trends over time, it's a net gain. Like we, we have, even in just our lifetime, seen just by any measure of, of uh, you know, the... the, the the you positives know, outweigh. Positive, the limitation of, you know, the elimination of suffering, uh, the, the health benefits, the life expectancy, uh, people being pulled uh, up out of poverty. Like, technology can help. There's, there, there's no Understood. argument that technology can be a net gain. The question is, how do we, how do we protect against uh, unintended consequences and in innovation? And that's, and that's the story of every fable surrounding innovations in technology. There's always the sorcerer's apprentice story of the mops getting too many buckets of water. You know, that's what it is. That's Frankenstein. That's the golem. So I think the trick is how do you, how do you engage with it? You know, it's what do they say with first lesson in surfing? You don't turn your back to the water. You don't turn your back to the sea. Have a healthy respect for these, about what's going on, uh, but let's get like-minded people to engage with it in a way where we maximize the upside and, and minimize the downside. You got on this innovation track by working in virtual reality and mm-hmm. you talked about getting back to this gnomes and goblins. Uh, is the virtual reality market where you think it needs to be in terms of you know, pouring your energies in a VR project? Yeah, well, I don't know how to time the market. Like, that's not the way... I, I don't know that... I, I would have thought that VR would have had more consumer adoption earlier based on the early developments that I saw in early development kits for, like, the Vive and the experience I had when I first put it on. There are challenges in the adoption in the, in the, in, in the uh, consumer marketplace that, you know, if you look at the curve, it's just a slower curve. I know that technology is not going away. Uh, with all of this great consumer-facing hardware that came out and everything that I learned working on Gnomes and Goblins... That allowed us to create these platforms in a more industrial capacity to make Lion King and to make The Mandalorian. And, you know, based on what the shortcomings were with the systems that we used on Jungle Book, which we were essentially inheriting from uh, Jim Cameron. Avatar? From Avatar. So you had motion. A lot of the same people were working on both those movies. It's motion capture. It's motion builder. 
it's it's a very specific market for uh, a set of tools that are expensive, and there's not a lot of incentive for innovation. All of a sudden, all these game engines pop on the scene. I'm working with Epic on the first season of The Mandalorian, and they have Fortnite. Like they have they have revenue streams that are um, you know that are very robust, and so that allows for a much more uh, you know. Uh, enthusiastic engagement when it comes to Mm R&D. Same thing with Unity, you know, working with them on on The Lion King, and they have, you know, they're in gaming. So you're not dealing with people who are just dealing with a handful of filmmakers who are doing motion capture. Now we're having all this great hardware and VR hardware and and, and, and Optitracks, all these things that you could buy, uh, you know, off the shelf uh, as a consumer. And that was the big breakthrough. Uh, NVIDIA made uh, game uh, video cards that allowed for a refresh rate that was fast enough to drive a full stage of video walls for uh, the Star Wars project. That wouldn't have been possible five years ago. So it's seeing what those breakthroughs are, how you could use them for storytelling, uh, and and how to, again, allow, uh, be aware of what's coming up and finding ways to seeing how all those things can interact. Uh, and, and, and distribution models are changing, too, and audience habits. And I think that, you know, that's also, you know, the positive side of, um, you know, all these, these breakthroughs, because you can make very specific programming. I've been trying to make a stop-motion Christmas special since Elf. The, <laughs> the business model wasn't there. Now, all of a sudden, you know, because of Netflix, I can. Or I could do a cooking show. Like, there's nothing technical about a cooking show. I love cooking with Roy Choi. We, there's an audience for that on that platform because you could seek out exactly what you want now. And so you have narrow casting, too. And so I think it creates a much richer environment for storytellers, and the barriers of entry are just dropping dramatically. I worked with Donald Glover. He started off basically creating his own stories on, on YouTube. And that slowly evolved into a very uh, dynamic, impressive career of being in a writer's room, doing stand-up, music. But it all came from the, uh, the lowering of the barrier of entry, the, gate, the disappearance of gatekeepers. Uh, so you're going to have this democratization of creativity that, that technology also has, has been offering us. Um, it sounds like you're at the bleeding edge of, of a pretty big trend in terms of, and I think it's somewhat democratization-fueled, lots of new tools improving what you're able to do on a screen. So is what, you're, is what you're doing paving the way, you think, for sort of this new generation to come and, and make movies in a way that is very different than was done 10 years ago? Um, I, I think that would be overstating it. I think what the goal here is to just say, make a decision saying, hey, let's engage with this. Let's see what the opportunities are here. Let's see how we could not how we could preserve what's good about how we came up and, and, and pay honor to the traditions that that we came up through um, in filmmaking. And let's invite like-minded people to collaborate together because ultimately it's going to be the human factor that that shapes our path into the future. And and it's the people who are innovating in these areas and creating these new tools or showing us how to use them, that's going to determine what we inherit and what the future holds. And, you know, uh, I think that it's part of my responsibility to... I've I've been lucky enough to have a wonderful career telling stories and having innovations that other people have developed 
for me to enjoy and for me to then pass some of that on to the next generation and for me to um, help preserve what those who came before me are concerned about, I think there's, there's something that's very fulfilling in that for me. And hopefully in getting like-minded people who are cautiously optimistic about the future to come together and be at, uh, at the forefront of those innovations makes, gives me comfort in, in the uncertainty that always, you always face whenever you're at a, at a point of, you know, of transition. Sounds like a good note to end on. John, thanks for coming in and talking about it today. Thank you. This has been another episode of Strictly Business. Tune in next week for another helping of scintillating conversation with media movers and shakers. And please make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear future episodes. Also, leave a review in Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. 